you should be melting as the story that has been told for thousands of years comes to your ears. And the story that melted her heart eventually ignited her heart with a flame and a passion to worship and to follow and to obey this God. Verse 11, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God, he is God. That was her profession of faith. She was putting her hope and her trust for a rescue in the God who is the only God. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Today we'll join Pastor Trent in the book of Joshua with the next message in the Onward series. At this point in history, God's people are the closest they've ever been to entering the promised land. Joshua, confident of God's promise to give Israel possession of the land, sends two spies ahead to investigate. While in Canaan, the spies make contact with a woman named Rahab. So let's listen now as Pastor Trent encourages us to move onward towards God's promise by letting go of the past, just as we'll see in Rahab's life. Today's message is titled, Getting Past the Past. Here's Pastor Trent. We all have things in our past that we're ashamed of, and we like to forget them, but the reality is this. Some of the things in our past that are shameful are actually keeping us from moving onward, and that is the lesson that we're going to learn today. There is a very vivid picture in Joshua chapter 2 of someone who needed to move onward from the shame in her past. And let me give you the big idea of the message here today. Do you like it when I put it all in one sentence? Here it is. I will only move onward from the shame of my past when I am tied to the rope of God's rescue. And we're going to be introduced to this young lady, and she's going to teach us three lessons this morning about how to move onward. Here's the first thing that she's going to teach us. She's going to teach us how to move onward from the shame in our past. And so let's dive into it, beginning in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies. You have to say it like that, okay? I mean, inside the heart of every man in this room is a secret desire to be a spy. If you ask the men when they were seven years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? Race car driver, football player, spy was somewhere in the top five, okay? I mean, to be involved in international espionage and to be all stealthy and sleuthy and that, that's a great occupation, you know what you think? Uh, no, they're inside the heart of every man in this room, there is a little spy. So it says that these two spies secretly were sent from Shittim as spies, saying, Joshua said, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, as I began to think about this, I'm like, well, why was he sending the spies in there? God had already promised that they would win every victory. So he wasn't sending the spies in there to evaluate how big's the enemy. That had already been done. Joshua was a spy earlier in his life, with, along with his friend named Caleb. They'd already done this. So why was he sending these two spies in there? I don't really know. I just kind of, as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking they wanted to make sure 
that there was enough distance between Jericho and themselves when the walls fell down. Okay, if the walls are 100 feet tall, we're going to have to stand back about 100 feet or we're going to get crushed in the process. There, there was an absolute certainty of victory. They just didn't want to make sure, they wanted to make sure they didn't get crushed in the process. That's what I'm thinking. And um, so they're going in there, they're looking at the land, and they encounter someone. It says here at the end of verse 1, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Verse 2, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So apparently they weren't very good spies because they, I mean, they got caught as soon as, I mean, they're just, people are chasing them down. They knew they were there. And so where do you go when you're looking for a place to hide? You go to a person who's good at hiding men. So here are these two spies, they walk up to the house of this prostitute, Jericho, and knock on the door, and you can imagine as Rahab opens the door, she sees two men. This was not an uncommon sight for her, because men were always knocking on her door. But these two men were arriving for a completely different purpose than the men that normally arrived at her location. In verse 3, it says, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, so, uh, for they have come to search out our land. Verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, <laughs> Next word is great. True. Let's underline that word. Because the next sentence is true, but nothing else she ever says is true. It says, true, the men came to me. True or false? True or false? True. And I did not know where they came from. True or false? True. Verse 5. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. True or false? False. I do not know where the men went. True or false? False. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. True or false? False. <laughs> she is a great liar. Do you know why she's a great liar? She'd had a lot of practice. The more shame there is in your past, the better liar you become. She was a prostitute. She was a professional hider of men who wanted to remain anonymous. This was not the first time she'd hidden men. And this was not the first time she had lied. She was a good liar because there was a mountain of shame in her past. Verse 6 tells us how she did it. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof, verse 7, so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. That's not a car dealership. A ford is a shallow place in the river where you can cross over by foot. So they're out there looking, them, looking for them in the Jordan River. They're nowhere near there. They're on top of the roof of the prostitute's house. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Interesting, isn't it? The contrast between the prostitutes and the spies. How does a woman become 
a prostitute. If you had asked Rahab as a seven-year-old girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? Being a prostitute was probably the farthest thing from her mind. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to fall in love. Rahab had never fallen in love. She had been used, but she had never been loved. She had had sex, but she'd never had love. So how does a seven-year-old little girl with pigtails and ribbons in her hair, how does she become a prostitute? You have to understand something about the culture in Canaan. Canaan was a land that was godless. Rahab didn't have a church to go to. She didn't have a Bible. She'd never had a preacher tell her about the glories and the redemption of God. She had become a product of the sexual appetites of godless men. As a matter of fact, she probably had been enslaved in human trafficking. She was someone that some man was using for money and sex. The two gods that are very prevalent in our day, even here in America, and that's why we still have prostitution. As a matter of fact, estimates are there's at least 12.3 million people enslaved in human trafficking for sexual purposes around the world, and that's just, that's just the numbers that we have some indication of evidence from. She was a commodity. She was someone who had been greatly sinned against. The average age of a prostitute on her first trick that we know about is age 13. It's quite likely she was not much older than that. We're going to find out later that we know that her parents were still alive, and so she was probably a young lady. And she was scarred by the sins that had been committed against her. And when you have been sinned against repeatedly over and over and over, do you know what happens? It begins to define your identity. God has an identity for all of us. We're made in the image of God. We're stamped with His fingerprints. He loves us. He has purpose and plan for our lives. But when you have been sinned against so often, it begins to redefine who you think you were created to be. Maybe she began to think, you know what? Because I've been treated like trash, I must be trash. Because I am only being used for sex, I must only be useful for sex. And it began to shape her identity and the mountain of shame in her heart from her past had begun to overwhelm her. And wherever shame exists, sin remains. In our world, there's, there's a couple of ways you can get rid of shame. We all have it. If you go to the world, apart from God, apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ, they'll tell you that shame is the result of a false understanding of sin. If you want to remove the shame, all you have to do is to redefine sin. You have to get rid of the construct of morality and sin and right and wrong in order to be set free from shame. That's the world's way of dealing with shame. 
Can I tell you the Bible's way of dealing with shame? God doesn't want you to redefine sin. He wants you to repent of sin. You have to own it. You have to take personal responsibility. You stop blaming and excusing and justifying your sin because of the way that those people treated you, because you have been sinned against. Here's what happens. The more often you've been sinned against, the more prone you are to sin. The things, the shameful things that have been done to you begin to become acceptable to you and you begin to embrace those things for yourself. And so Rahab, Rahab, even though she was a victim, she was not an innocent victim. Sins committed against you make you more prone for sins to be committed by you. And you are so much less willing to identify sin committed by you than you are sin committed against you. No matter where you are today, no matter how horribly you've been treated, no matter how much you've been sinned against, maybe even that's going on right now in some dark corner of your life and nobody else knows about it. Please understand, your past sins and the sins that have been committed against you, they may explain your sin, but they do not excuse your sin. You've got to take personal responsibility. If you want to move onward, you have to identify sin in order to remove the shame. Rahab needed to be rescued. All in favor of a new future for Rahab? All in favor of moving onward past prostitution? Do, do you have a little sympathy in your heart now for Rahab? You know, it's so often, we're, we're so self-righteous. We read the story of Rahab and you just think, oh, how could she be so evil? And yet, if we understand how she's been sinned against, it makes us a lot more sympathetic toward how she is committing sin. It reminded me, as I studied this this week, of my favorite Valentine's Day movie. Of course, you all know the movie I'm talking about. Forrest Gump, right? You know Forrest Gump? Remember his girlfriend? What was her name? Say it together. Yeah, and if you didn't use it, if you said it like Jenny, you didn't get to see the movie. Jenny, right, everybody? Let's all say it together. Jenny. So Jenny is Forrest's girlfriend. You remember this? And, and uh, she's a wild child, right? I mean, she is sinning left and right, and you're thinking, you know, what happened to her that made her so out of control until finally about halfway in the movie, we learned the backstory on Jenny. They were taking a walk, and they came up to a house. And we realize that was the house, that was the place where Jenny had been raised and she had been so often sinned against, that was the place of her shame. And we don't, we're never told really what all happened there, but it was certainly a place that she hated. So much so that in this scene, she begins to throw rocks at the house and she bursts into tears and falls to the ground. Forrest is wondering what in the world is going on. But she was certainly carrying a mountain of shame. And if she was going to move onward, she was going to need to deal with the shame. We said earlier that in the 
heart of every man, there's a little spy that wants to bubble out. Do you know what the reality is? Why do you think God preserved this story for us this morning? It wasn't just a documentary on Rahab. The reality is this. In the heart of every person here, there's not only a spy, there's a prostitute. It's filled with shame, regret, sins that have been committed against you and sins that have been committed by you. And you'll never be set free from the shame as long as you are hiding and lying and covering and content to remain in your sin. God wants you to move onward. How do you move onward? Here's the second thing. You move onward by faith in my present. You move onward by faith right here, right now. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, remember they're up on the roof. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, look at your Bible. Do you see where it refers to the Lord? See anything special about the word Lord? See the four letters, L-O-R-D? See those? Um, you notice they're in capital letters? That is your English Bible translator's way of letting you know that is the proper name of God that God self-disclosed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 2. It's the name Yahweh. It's His proper name. When Moses asked, who should I tell them is sending me? God gave His proper name. Tell them the I Am sent you. And it's translated in the way that we know that, that that name is his proper name in our English translations. It's capitalized there. Here's what's significant about that. How did a pagan Canaanite prostitute know the name of God? She didn't just say the God or the man upstairs. She used his name. Somehow she had been given knowledge of God's name. How do you think she got it? I'll give you a secret here in just a minute. I think I know how. Verse 9, and she said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. Here's what else she knew. And the fear of you has fallen on us. There's only three ways to respond to the knowledge of God. The first one is fear, to run from him. The second one is fight against him. And they were getting ready to do battle with God. Some of those men were strapping on armor and they're going to fight against the will of God. They're going to lose every time. Uh, little side note here, you're never going to win that fight. You might as well just surrender. And that's the third option. Not just fear, not just fight, but to give him your faith and believe who he is. And so... She's like, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Um, I think I'd like to be a part of that team. And so that's exactly what happens. The fear of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Somehow, the conversation among the Canaanites was what God had done in rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Do you think that got 
Rahab's attention? There is a God who rescues people who are in slavery? I am in slavery. I am interested in getting to know this God because I would like to move onward out of my slavery to a better place. And so when she heard, by the way, who do you think told her? I think it was her clients. I think those men that passed through had been talking among themselves that there is an army gathered on the other side and they have a God that is bigger than our gods with little G's and he is on the move and he is someone who delivered them out of Egypt. Maybe she even knew more detail than we're given here. Maybe she had heard how God delivered them out of Egypt that there were these 10 plagues that this God sent to Pharaoh, the king there in Egypt, to get his attention so that he would let these people go. Maybe she had heard about this last plague, about how this God was going to kill all the firstborn there in Egypt if they didn't let them go. And in order to protect these slaves, he told them, I want you to take an innocent lamb and I want you to spill its blood and I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on the doorpost of your homes because the color of this rescue is going to be red. And maybe she'd heard about the blood and the lamb and the rescue and the Passover. And here these people were gathered on the banks of the Jordan River. It goes on in the middle of verse 10. She'd also heard about how God had defeated the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the two kings there. Their names were Sion and Og, great names for kings, who you devoted to destruction. God was undefeated. Those guys lost, and so they didn't really have a whole lot of hope. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Now, you can't go past that. Some of you have frozen hearts this morning and you are hearing the story of rescue and redemption and faith and as soon as you hear it if your heart is not melting it's the wrong response you should be melting as the story that has been told for thousands of years comes to your ears. And the story that melted her heart eventually ignited her heart with a flame and a passion to worship and to follow and to obey this God. It says it here at the end of verse 11. Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God. What was she saying? Your God is now my God. It's not just going to be something that God does for you. I want him to do that for me. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That was her profession of faith. She was putting her hope and her trust for a rescue in the God who is the only God. Verse 12, now then, Please swear to me, she's speaking to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me and my father's house. And, notice she doesn't stop. 
She doesn't just ask for a promise. She asks for a sign. And give me a sure sign. Why didn't it just stop and say, swear to me? Swear to me that you'll get me out of here. Swear to me that you'll come back and get me. Swear it to me. Promise. She said, I want a sign. Why do you think she asked for a sign? How many promises do you think she had heard from men? How many clients had told her, baby, I love you, and I'm coming back for you. I'm going to get you out of this mess. You think she had much trust in men? No, because she'd been lied to and sinned against so much by men, she had very little trust of men, not knowing how much integrity these men had, not knowing they were men of God. She said, I don't want to promise, I want a sign. And they're going to give her a sign. You're going to find out what that is here in just a minute. Let's continue reading verse 13. That you will save alive my father and my mother and my brother and my sister and all who belong to them, my nieces and my nephews and my cousins. You know how the family tree works. And deliver our lives from death. She knew that the invasion was coming. She knew that God was going to wipe out this country, but she wanted out alive. And so she asked them for a promise. She asked them for a sign. The men respond in verse 14. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even unto death. She'd never heard that before. She'd never had men that were willing to lay down their lives to rescue a woman. Do you know what that phrase is? Our life for yours, even unto death. That's the echo of the gospel in the sixth book of the Bible. How many of you are husbands? Raise your hands. Husbands, can I give you one verse? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives. Most of us check out at that point. It's like, I'm just not into my feelings. I'm just not warm and fuzzy. I just really have trouble with, you know, all this warm and fuzzy stuff. That verse is not telling you to feel something. That verse is telling you to do something. Husbands, love your wives. How do I do that? As Christ loved the church. How did he do that? And gave himself for her. He was saying, I would rather die than to see you perish. Your life in front of mine. And that's what these spies were saying. We will give our lives to express to you how much we love you for what you've done for us. Just like Rahab, we too can move onward from the shame of the past by putting our trust in the God who rescues. I hope you'll join us next week as Pastor Trent explains how the symbol of Rahab's rescue also points us to the redemption found through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Well, each week at Harvest Bible Chapel, we gather together to lift high the name of Jesus through worship and the teaching of God's Word. We invite you to join us on either our Granger, Indiana campus or our St. Joseph, Michigan campus. For service times and campus locations, visit us online at harvestgranger.org. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus. I hope that God's Word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. Visit us online at harvestgranger.org.